citizen sleuths, online crime fighting for weekend vigilantes. But what happens when armchair investigators go too far? Dr. Sarah Loggison from Rutgers University School of Criminal Justice joins us. I'm Lawrence Coletti, and this is Legal Talk Today. Welcome back, listeners. Thank you for being here with us. We've got another episode about true crime for you. This time we're talking about those meddling online amateur investigators. No, no, it's not Scooby-Doo. Today we're talking about online communities of amateur investigators who gather to solve crimes. They do this as a hobby and they're known to work with the actual police. And sometimes, sometimes they find breaks in cases that long went cold. But before we get into it, we need to thank our sponsor, Noda. Noda is powered by M&T Bank because you went to law school to be a lawyer not an accountant. Take advantage of NOTA, a no-cost IALTA management tool that helps solo and small law firms track client funds down to the penny. Visit trustnota.com forward slash legal to learn more. That's NOTA spelled N-O-T-A. Terms and conditions may apply. All right, let's say hello to our guest, Dr. Sarah Loggison. She is an assistant professor at Rutgers University School of Criminal Justice. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely, absolutely. So, uh, Dr. Loggison, the origin of this show comes from our producer, Molly McDonough. She shared this piece from The Guardian with me. It's titled, Citizen Crime App Falsely Accused a Homeless Man of Starting a Wildfire. And so, really interesting story about some of these online sleuth groups. But, uh, you know, I wanted to kind of get into that a little bit. I'm going to ask you some questions about that particular instance. But just as a little setup for our audience today, we're going to be talking about these online groups that uh, solve crime. They're not paid, these groups. They they get together as amateurs and they share information online. And so, um, Dr. Lagasin, you know, uh, true crime podcasts have been very popular, especially during the pandemic. I have uh, fallen prey to a couple of them, so I tune in regularly. But, you know, some of these uh, these true crime podcasts kind of feed that crowdsourced online sleuth investigations ecosystem. And a couple of my favorites, you know, my first murder squad. And so this is a show, uh, one of the investigators, uh, he's a host, he's uh, Paul Holes. He's a former cold case investigator and his uh, co-host, uh, Billy Jensen's this web sleuth reporter and how they got together. And this is important for our discussion today is that an author, Michelle McNamara, she wrote a book called I'll Be Gone in the Dark, One Woman's Obsessive Search for the Golden State Killer. So she does this big body of investigative work and then hands it to investigators and they get a break in that case. And a lot of these online sleuths think that, but for her work, her personal investigations on her own dime, they may not have caught the Golden State Killer. And so that's one example of success. Another one just recently, I'm sure people have uh, seen this in the news, is uh, Chris Lambert is a new podcast host. He hosts Your Own Backyard, and he did a big, long investigative work piece about the Kristen Smart murder case. And so now there's been a couple of arrests there. So Dr. Loggison, you know, these uh, online groups have a track record of success, but it doesn't always go the way they planned. So let's start with the Guardian piece. It's about a homeless man who is uh, falsely accused of starting a wildfire. So can you tell us what happened in that story? Sure. So Citizen is an app where people can upload video streams, photographs, sort of report suspicious behavior in their neighborhood that other users of the app can see. Um, There's also a feed into the local police scanner. And so you can have all sorts of different updates about crime that's occurring near you. What happened with the wildfire was a bit different. This time, somebody submitted a tip to the app, and it was a photograph of a man who was accused on the platform of starting this wildfire. 
and it apparently went out to over 860,000 people. And this time the app did something new, which was they offered a $30,000 reward. So we're used to the police offering rewards for tips, but this time we had a privately funded app offering the reward. And then it turned out to be the wrong person. So after the the award came out and the uh, the photo was shared with hundreds of thousands of people, it turned out to be a false accusation. Wow. So this person, this homeless man, got his life just turned totally upside down by the power of the internet and sort of this uh, big giant crowdsourcing groupthink model here. And so, you know, it definitely has its advantages, but it has some disadvantages too. And so I, w- I want to tap into your experience and knowledge base on this, you know, just in terms of law enforcement. Now they do partner up with these amateur sleuthing groups, but how do they kind of typically acknowledge them as a tool for fighting crime? I think it depends. I mean, I think police, of course, recognize that technology is allowed for more access into communities more access to information, um, much more efficient and quick access to information. Police routinely monitor social media pages or websites like Nextdoor or things like the Citizen app. Um, But when I've asked police about this, you know, they've told me that while helpful, these tools don't completely replace traditional police work. So I think right now it's still sort of a, a mixed response from police in terms of how useful this can be. And just in your experience, you know, when a group kind of gets on a certain case, you know, they express an interest in a murder case or maybe a a robbery case, you know, how often do they get it right? How often do you think they break something loose that the investigators are not already seeing? It's hard to tell. But one thing that we do know is that the types of crimes that catch the attention of online sleuths are usually pretty sensationalist crimes. They often focus on a particular type of victim, which is most often white people or upper middle class people. So, you know, the kind of Internet based interest in crimes often ignores the more common crimes that are too often overlooked or under investigated, such as sexual assault or crimes related to poverty and mental health. So the highly publicized cases that they do get right, the internet sleuths get right, certainly get a lot of attention, but these are not representative of crime overall in America. Well, you're kind of getting into my next question for you, and that was the pros and cons of when law enforcement partners up with these online sleuth groups. So you talked about some of these common crimes are not getting investigated, but some other crimes are being elevated. They gather more attention. But what are some of the other pros and cons associated with this type of partnership? Well, I think some of the pros are that police often feel that they're under-resourced. You know, even though police do receive more resources than perhaps other parts of the legal system, they can't always spread these resources around evenly. And so there's just often things that over time can start to slip through the cracks. So I think for police who, um, you know, are, are strapped for time or resources or help, any information gathering that can help the police be more efficient with their resources is helpful. The police have always used the community as their main source of information. So so there's some benefits there. Um, The cons, as I just described, are that we're really seeing a focus on particular types of crimes. And a related issue with that is that it can really inflate unreasonable levels of fear in people. They can think that they're always at risk of being victimized. And 
that culture of fear of crime in America really doesn't match onto crime statistics or match onto your individual likelihood of being victimized. So we really perpetuate this fear of crime that can be very profitable to the podcasts and the television networks and the movies that also kind of um, make money based on on selling or producing content that continues to make people feel afraid. A final con is that, you know, when we have this kind of fear of crime that permeates everyday life, we often see racial stereotyping or stereotyping of mental illness or certain neighborhoods. And so there is some concern that, you know, again, this focus on particular types of victims or particular types of crimes might exacerbate incorrect and and often unethical stereotypes of crime. Yeah, you know, I think the only two things I would add there, you know, just in terms of uh, one one being a pro is that uh, what I like about it, at least the idea of it, is that you're getting different disciplines, different professions, um, different know-how involved in there. You know, someone outside of law enforcement might look at the same set of clues and see something totally different. I don't know how often that happens, but, you know, there's certainly the potential for it. But on the con side, you know, this is something I've heard on if if my uh, true crime podcast listening serves me well, sometimes the criminals can get tipped off on where an investigation may be leaning based on things that they read in these message boards. Well, let's transition over to law enforcement's responsibilities. You know, when they do decide to bring in one of these uh, outside online groups, you know, what obligations does law enforcement have to their local community? I think the first is to make sure that they're also protecting people from vigilante justice, meaning, you know, when accusations are leveraged against people and they're high profile or widely known, that can create more risk and actually the potential for more crime against the person who's falsely accused. So it's really the police, um, the law enforcement's role here to ensure that due process and that the sort of correct precautions are are put in place when someone is accused by the community or by the, the Internet mob before they're ever formally charged with a crime. Obviously, this is well before a conviction of a crime. Um, I think the police also have an obligation to recognize their role as a content producer, which is a very different role that police play now in the world of social media. So when they post a mugshot or a wanted poster in the digital format, or even post an arrest record, they are creating a de facto criminal record for somebody. And it's not a criminal record that necessarily reflects the end of an investigation or that we know it was the correct person who was arrested. And importantly, We don't know whether or not a judge or a jury has convicted that person yet. So that really is a new burden for police in the digital age to think about how the content they produce, often in the name of public safety, might create harms for people down the road. Well, Dr. Lagasin, you know, from your criminal justice background, you know that uh, police, because they work for the government, they have to abide by certain constitutional restrictions when it comes to investigating certain suspects for a crime. But citizen slews are not exactly under that same obligation. And so from that perspective, you know, what advantage might a citizen sleuth have over, say, a police officer when they're doing their own independent investigation? I think access is the the key difference here. One example that comes to mind is that of the ring doorbell cam footage. So you can buy these, these security cameras, put them on your doorbell, and any regular person can just order one online and install that in a private space that obviously would have required a warrant should the police want to set up a camera or surveil that area. And then people can voluntarily and very easily share the content, the video content, with the police directly. 
Um, another example is like a community group or an HOA getting automated license plate readers where they're collecting their own data, their own surveillance footage, and then they can share that voluntarily with police or law enforcement. So it can really skip over the warrant requirement. And then, of course, it's up to the courts to decide whether or not that evidence can make it in. Now, here's that cautionary question for the amateur sleuth out there. And so this is related to qualified immunity. Now, when police officers, they go about the course of their job, they're doing their duties, they're investigating someone. If it later turns out to be the wrong person, you know, they're not held civilly liable for investigating the wrong person before they discovered it was the wrong person. But a citizen sleuth does not have that same type of qualified immunity. So I guess from that perspective, Dr. Lagasin, what type of liabilities could a citizen sleuth open themselves up for if they're wrong and public information gets out and ruins someone's life? Well, of course, there's risk to be sued for defamation, right? If you are writing content online or producing content that implies that a person is a criminal when they're not. I mean, I don't think there's any question that there's a stigma around the criminal record or the criminal label. But I would say, you know, that most people accused of crimes, like in the story we we opened by talking about in The Guardian, uh, most people accused of crimes don't have the resources to file a lawsuit and instead kind of suffer the consequences of a false accusation all on their own, and they don't take any legal recourse. So besides the legal side, I think that people who have been involved in false accusations have to deal with sort of the psychological and the social blowback for that. And and I think the Citizen app is kind of struggling with that right now, that plenty of people have trusted this platform as a way to get factual information. And now the app kind of has to make these amends to its users about about putting incorrect information out there and, of course, make amends to the person who is accused. Yeah, you know, one thing I would add to that, too, is also uh, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which kind of puts this app right in the crosshairs. And, you know, to the degree that an online community has an administrator that maybe decides the course of the investigation or, you know, they play more of an editorial role and really try to control the content, they open themselves up for lawsuits instead of just kind of being a sort of unbiased platform that just lets people post whatever they want. So essentially, they can get in trouble for things posted by their members, even though they didn't post them themselves. So let's switch over to my last two questions here. And so you got into it just a little bit earlier about some of the downsides to someone that's uh, falsely accused by one of these online citizen sleuth groups. But I think it's worth noting that, uh, you know, when you're talking about an online group, this can be a lot of people and the record's public. I mean, um, even if they have like password protection or it's one of those groups you have to sign on, it's still public online. It's not the same as the investigation being contained within the walls of the police department. And so kind of unique to that experience of being accused online from one of these online citizen groups, what are some unique harms that come from a false accusation coming from one of those online groups? I've interviewed lots of people who have dealt with an accusation on the internet. Sometimes it was well-grounded and ended a conviction, and other times it was a false accusation. But either way, the harms are similar. And so it almost seems like in the digital age, a mere accusation starts to feel to a person like they were convicted of a crime. And that can lead to straight up discrimination by employers, by landlords, coworkers. People have told me stories about others at their church not wanting to talk to them anymore, other parents at their children's school. Um, it makes online dating or meeting a new partner really difficult because obviously your new date's going to Google you. And what if the first thing that comes up is content accusing you of some sort of crime? 
And of course, the accusations stay at the top of the Google clicks, right? Because they get the most attention. But any sort of documentation that clears your name tends to either not exist or not make it very, very high up on your search results. And so an accusation is really powerful today, um, partly because it, it really never goes away on the internet. Yeah, you know, and I think uh, one of the the dangers too is doxing, you know, and we know all of read stories about public figures whose address gets out there and all that stuff can be pretty readily found if you really look for it. The fact that it's put on a big platform and it gets out to a lot of people all at once can certainly up the danger when people know exactly where you live. So last question for you, Dr. Lagasin, you know, um, here's the moral of the story question. If you are going to, um, you know, put together the perfect ecosystem between law enforcement by like a police station or some investigators that need some help, you know, they're overworked and they're under-resourced and they want to start working with one of these online groups to try to break an old case open, how do you put them together? What are the protocols that you would put into place? Well, I'd encourage the police to be working with prosecutors when taking tips just to sort of think critically about these evidentiary problems and the, how the warrant requirement should or should not apply in this kind of context. Um, I'd encourage police to be better at listening to the community, so expand their ability to properly address civilian tips or concerns and to sort through accusations in a way that protect constitutional rights and privacy, to sort of serve as a gatekeeper. I'd also encourage people to spend their time watchdogging the police and requesting data about police behavior um, or police misconduct. I think that transparency laws and access to information exist for a lot of reasons, but you know, the original intent was to ensure the justice system is serving justice. And so I think that there's there's lots of ways that people interested in the legal system can get involved to seek out good outcomes. Well, Dr. Lagasin, I really enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you for being here with us. Thank you so much for having me. And if our listeners, they want to reach out, learn more about what you do, where can they find you? They can find me online by Googling me or they can find me at sarahlagasin.com. And thank you listeners for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please leave us a friendly review in your favorite podcasting app. And one more thank you to our sponsor, the fine folks at Noda. You can find them at trustnota.com forward slash legal. That's Noda spelled N-O-T-A. And last but never least, thank you to our team producer, Molly McDonough, and our LTN audio crew for all their hard work. This has been Legal Talk Today. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Have a great day, everybody. <laughs>